All right. In uh, 2003, we'll get to the text in just a second. In 2003, many people became fascinated with the world of competitive poker. Everybody's like, wait a second, isn't this church? Just let me get through it, okay? Give me a second here to unpack this. When an unknown player by the name of, this is an interesting name, Chris Moneymaker, Chris Moneymaker burst onto the poker scene. Uh, Chris Moneymaker won an online uh, tournament that secured an entry into the World Series of Poker main event in Las Vegas, Nevada, playing a game called Texas Hold'em. Have you guys ever heard of Texas Hold'em before? Playing it, everybody's like, nah, I don't, I don't know if I want to admit that in church. I've heard of it, okay? Playing a game called Texas Hold'em. Uh, the unknown moneymaker went on to win the whole tournament. He had gained an entry on an online format. Nobody knew who this guy was. He goes on to win uh, the Texas Hold'em main event in Las Vegas, and he sprung popu- uh, poker into popularity for a number of years on TV. People would watch uh, poker, at least in California they did, where I was from. I don't know about in Kentucky. Uh, in Texas Hold'em, in the game of Texas Hold'em, a classic move to assert dominance and scare another player off a hand in the event of a bluff or an advance to take a larger pot with a solid, say you have a good poker hand, is called going all in. Have you guys heard that term before? I'm going all in. Chris Moneymaker used this move uh, in a pivotal moment to win that tournament. And our story today, uh, we don't witness Jesus playing poker, for one. But we witness Jesus go all in in his mission to reconcile and regenerate the most reviled members of society to God. And if it makes you a little uneasy to hear a pastor use poker as a means to illustrate the ministry of Jesus, that's not by accident. Uh, Just imagine the look on the Pharisees' faces as Jesus actively engaged and befriended the seediest characters conducting business along the Sea of Galilee, which we will look at Uh, This morning, what we witnessed this morning, and I think what we need in this time is a story of amazing grace. We see God's amazing grace. Let's read Mark 2, 13 uh, to 17. God's word says this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Our first point this morning, point number one, is that Jesus does this. We learn this in the story. Jesus initiates, Jesus associates, and celebrates uh, with sinners, we can see. Jesus initiates, associates, and celebrates. As he walked along... He saw Levi, right? Uh, We think that Levi is actually Matthew. If you read the book of Matthew, there's a connection there. Uh, Just like uh, Simon had a few different names, Simon and Peter, we think that Levi is also Matthew. So you can connect him as Matthew the tax collector. 
So he sees Levi sitting at a tax collector's booth, and Jesus says what words? He says two words to him. Follow me. Follow me. And Levi what? Got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, and his disciples, his disciples were present too. It wasn't just Jesus. For there were many who followed him. We find that in Mark 2, 14 uh, to 15. Just to give us some historical context here, some of you may hear this term tax collector and you think, well, that's just like someone that works for the IRS. That's a pretty decent job, good people. Uh, tax collectors are a little bit different in this day and age in the Roman Empire. Tax collectors in the Jewish culture were among the most repulsive groups within that community. Uh, aside from the Roman government collecting taxes, they would also tax people along trading routes, key geographic junctions, and as they entered cities. And these tax collectors would set up booths in these key areas and charge people taxes as they went to and fro. The tax collectors would generally collect what was required, a baseline amount that would go back to the Roman government. But here's the key. Whatever they could bring in beyond that money was theirs to keep. Or whoever was their overseer would put them there to try to collect as much as they possibly could. Did that make these gentlemen very popular in culture? No, especially not uh, the Jewish community. Uh, They were viewed as being on equal social footing with this group, murderers, thieves, and they were deemed ritually unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees, okay? Was this a good group of people to associate with? No, absolutely not. But yet we see Jesus do this. Go to the sinner and initiate. He initiates. He invites the sinner to what? Follow me. He initiates or invites the tax collector Verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi sitting at the tax collector's booth. He says, follow me. Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. But it doesn't end with a simple invitation. Not just follow me, but Jesus then associates with the sinner, the tax collector. This unclean person in the eyes of the Pharisees. He associates and also celebrates the saving of this man. Jesus initiates, associates, and celebrates with the sinner. Where do we find that at? Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now let's unpack the dinner scene. Some of you may think in your head, You know, typical dinner at your home, you got a big table, nice chairs, everybody has proper social distancing, sitting kind of far apart. In this culture, the table would have been set down low, a lot smaller living space than what we would be accustomed to, and they would sit and recline together at the dinner table, kind of with their feet, probably snuggled up right next to the guy next to him. They were in close quarters, reclining back, eating close together. What's the picture that we're getting here? Jesus is close with these sinners. Jesus is associating with them. 
Jesus is celebrating salvation with them. Jesus has gone all in, right? He's gone all in. He's now associating, eating, and celebrating with the unclean in society. Thinking back just a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus healing the leper. What did he do with the leper? He touched him, and then he sent him on his way to go and to be deemed cleaned by the the priesthood. Okay, and then last week, we saw Jesus forgive and heal a paralytic man, and he gets up, he tells him to go. But now, how do we know Jesus is going all in? Because now, Jesus has invited him to follow me, and he associates with him by going into his home, by reclining at the dinner table, by eating a meal, a very intimate setting in this culture. Eating a meal with somebody was likened to them being family, the closest associates they ate together, much like our dinner tables. We usually don't eat in our home with strangers, do we? No, we eat with close friends and family. There was a sacredness around the dinner table. And so Jesus initiated, he associated, and he celebrated with these sinful men. Next, number two, Jesus does not fear. Jesus does not fear. Who does he not fear? He doesn't fear the opinions of the religious leaders. Mark 2, 16-17 says this, When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus does not, right here in this instance, nor ever fear the opinions of others in his ministry of reconciliation. An unexpected king coming in unexpected ways, reconciling sinners. He says boldly, I have not come to save the healthy, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pause there for a second and unpack that statement. Does that mean that these Pharisees or the religious folk are safe because they're righteous? They don't need Jesus, right? By all means, no. Why? What is God's word? David says in Psalm 14.3, There is no one, no one who does good, not even one. And then Paul echoes this statement, Romans 3.10, he says, There is no one, what? Righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous because according to Scripture, what? There is no one that is righteous. No one. The Pharisees had taken God's law. They distorted God's law. Their intentions seemed good. If you would have witnessed what the Pharisees were doing, you probably would have said, those are good guys. They're doing good things. Their intentions were were well-aimed, but the actions and attitudes of their heart do not capture the heart of our loving God. They didn't display the same heart that God had. Because we see the heart of God in who? Jesus Christ. Jesus. They miss the point. And let's be honest, sometimes we miss the point too, don't we, church? 
sometimes we miss the point of the people that we need to be reaching and reconciling. All too often, they look a lot like us. They struggle with the sins that we struggle with. But Jesus went to the most reviled members of society and he said, follow me. Follow me. Church, we're called to this same type of ministry. Searching and seeking out the least of these and pointing them to the work of Jesus Christ. It's a ministry in Louisville. Some of you may have heard it's called Scarlet Hope. Who here's heard of Scarlet Hope Ministry? Uh, Scarlet Hope began, I think, in year 2007 uh, by Rochelle Starr. And she felt a mission was available in Louisville, in the city of Louisville, to minister to women in the sex industry. Specifically, what we would call gentlemen's clubs or strip clubs. And her ministry began by making meals and taking them to these clubs to show these women love. And she would work her way in and have meals available for them to show them that they weren't trash, that they weren't nothings, that they weren't worthless, but that they were worth the love of Christ. And she ministered to them. And she continues to minister to them. Her ministry is alive and well. Uh, She operates a bakery called Scarlet Bakery that goes to uh, bring these women back into society to get them out of the sex industry, to employ them, teach them skills, show them the love of Christ, and give them a purpose beyond what they've had. Do you think Rochelle Starr got some funny looks as she was bringing food into the back of a seedy strip club in Louisville? Better believe it. But she took steps. She ministered to the least of these. Now, Some wisdom here. Some of us are called to ministries like that because they're able to handle that type of ministry. Some of us are called to other ministries, so the least of these men in the room, if you have an issue with lust and pornography, you probably shouldn't be ministering in strip clubs. Leave that to ladies who are able to handle that kind of ministry. Men who struggle with alcoholism, your ministry is not in the bar, at the bar top. But church, hear this. There are few places that are out of bounds. We see Jesus engaging with sinners. And we need to pray for discernment and wisdom and what that looks like for Christians, for followers of Christ, to reach people in dark places and to draw them out with what? The love of Christ and say, hey, I got a better way. Don't follow me. Follow Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus Christ. Maybe the question begins with, how many people do I associate with that are not Christians at all? I know for me, a struggle I have as as a man in ministry is that my ministry is to the church, and I oftentimes find myself never associating with non-Christians. And so I have to strive hard to have those conversations. And all too often as we mature in Christ and distance ourselves from the world, 
we grow in the danger of being too separated away and not being engaged in culture, not being engaged in conversations with people that are not followers of Christ. But yet we see Jesus where? Right on their ground, ministering to them, calling them out, not leaving them where they're at. Levi wasn't left at the tax collector's booth. He got up and left a lucrative business. He left that behind and he followed Christ. Jesus didn't leave him a sinner. He called him out of sin. And he has called us, church, to do the same thing. And so my question for you this morning, are you driven to advance the kingdom in the face of maybe those who judge and condemn you? Maybe you're going to get some weird looks because you're ministering to people that uh, they don't really fit our profile or stereotype. Human life is so important, and God values every human life, and God desires to see the heart of every man, woman, and child reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to be about that ministry. Hear this. Jesus has ushered in, through his ministry, he's ushered in a new age. A new thing is occurring. A new age has dawned. I'm not talking about new age religion. But a new era in God's redemptive plan. Let's read about it. Mark 2, 18 to 22. God's word says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into what? New wineskins. Let's set the scene here. The Pharisees, now Jesus is having a meal with these sinners. The Pharisees, it seems like they're kind of peering into the window, right? They're looking in to see what's going on peering into the window of the tax collector's house. Why in the world does this Jesus fellow not act like we do? He doesn't fast like John or John's disciples. He doesn't fast like we do. Why? Because something new is coming. Because something new is coming. Number one, point number one, a new wine and wineskin. A new wine and wineskin. Mark 2, 22. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into what? New wineskins. Okay, we don't use wineskins anymore, so let me describe to you what's happening. They would craft these pouches that would hold the wine or some other liquid, usually out of goat skin. And once it had served its purpose, once the wine was no longer in it, it was empty, what happens to those old skins when there's nothing left in them? They get dried up, 
They get brittle. They crack. Okay? If I put new wine into it, okay, the natural process for wine is that it ferments, and as it ferments, it expands. So what happens to that old wineskin is that new wine expands in there, is that it breaks. And now what? It's worthless. The liquid that's inside is all over the floor. It's worthless. And the wineskin is worthless. But Jesus says, no, you put new wine into new wineskins. He's using this as an illustration. I know all the Pinterest moms in there right now are saying, but wait, I bet you we could take that goat skin and we could rehydrate it. That's not the point of what Jesus is trying to make here. What Jesus is doing is he's making a bold statement about the old way of doing things. The fullness has come to bring something new. What is the new thing? It's the work of Christ. The Messiah has come. God in the flesh. The old system is no longer needed. A new time has come. We call this the new covenant. The new covenant. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 to 34. God's word says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? New covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because what? They all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will, this is good news right here, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Isn't that good news? The new has come. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's Word says this, and I will remember their sins no more. That should bring a smile to everybody's face in this room who is in Christ, that God will remember their sins no more through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Where do we find this at? Hebrews 9.15, read in your notes. It says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a what? New covenant. Of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under what? The first covenant. Christ paid the penalty at the cross for our sins. We have all sinned against the old covenant, but Jesus is the ransom. What does that mean? He paid the price. What price needed to be paid? God's wrath is poured out on sin. For those who have violated God's law, that have violated God's righteousness, His wrath will be poured out on them. But 
God sent Himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to receive the wrath that we should have received for our sin. He paid the penalty on the cross. He has paid the price for our sin for both Jew and Gentile. He is one Lord for one people. We are one with Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile. Paul talks about this, that we are engrafted in. We are brought into the family of God through one. Through who? Jesus Christ. And he deals with all of us in one way through the new covenant mediator, Jesus Christ Why is he the mediator? Because he took the wrath that we deserved. He covers us with his blood so that we can receive the righteousness of Jesus. Because he was perfect. He did no wrong. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Jesus has ushered in our last point, a new and glorious feast. A new and glorious feast. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? He says they can't. So long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Christian, I call out to you this morning in this time of distress and uncertainty. Why does your face look so downcast? Where is your hope? Your hope is in the eternal Christ, in his righteousness, in his work on the cross. Jesus has come and he has invited you to his feast, to his table, to recline and be with your Savior. That kind of relationship because he loves you. And because he gets glory from reconciling dead things and bringing them to life. But Jesus says when he is taken from them on that day, they will fast. Yes! Do we agree? The disciples and the Christ followers, they were hurting when they saw their Savior stripped bare on the cross and die. Weeping and crying. but he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. On the third day, he raised to new life. Our resurrected king, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. The darkness came over the land. Jesus Christ beat death in the grave and was raised to new life. Christian, why is your face so downcast? Why are you so worried? Why are you so anxious? Jesus gives life to things that are dead. He covers your sin. He loves you. He has called you into relationship with himself. You are a child of God. And here's the greatest news. You're promised eternity with your Lord and Savior because of his work on the cross and his glorious resurrection. That's why the resurrection matters. Because we can look in the face of a dangerous virus 
We can look in the face of a broken marriage. We can look in the face of our sin. We can look in the face of our shortcomings and we can see our Savior and we can see that He has beat all of those things and that one day He will return and He will make all things new just as God intended it to be. See, Jesus, He went all in, didn't He? He went all in. He initiates, associates, and celebrates with sinners. But he doesn't leave them in their sin. He calls them out. They're covered by his precious blood. He is the mediator of of the new covenant. And he has invited you to take part in the feast with him. It's why he says in John 16.33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. What? But take heart. I have overcome the world. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.